This message by John Piper, titled The Heart of Worship, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the second general session at our Worship God 2009 conference. John leads Desiring God and serves as pastor for preaching at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We ended last night defending that God's self-exaltation, especially his self-exaltation in the cross, is an act of love and not megalomania or egomania. It is love. It sounds egomaniacal, maniacal to certain people that I quoted because they don't have the biblical mindset to, to see it in what it is. And, and the main reason I gave for why God's self-exaltation in the cross and everywhere else is an act of love is because the one uh, source of pleasure that will be deep enough to satisfy us and long enough to satisfy us forever is the sight of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If God in some kind of mock humility sends us away from himself to go find our pleasure somewhere else and to find a satisfying admiration someone somewhere else he will hate us it will look humble it will be what the world thinks a god perhaps ought to do is make them central go find a human to be happy with go find a sunset to be satisfied with go find a canyon to be moved by but i'm not going to call any attention to myself as god what a tragedy that would be for us So that's where we ended, striking the note that God's self-exaltation, whether it be in the words of Christ, you must love me above everybody, or whether it be in the act of the cross, I am doing this to demonstrate my righteousness and vindicate my holiness that has been trampled by millions of sins that I have passed over. Whichever way, it is love. I hope you can make that plain so that your people glory in God's God-centeredness and do not feel it as a threat to their joy, but as the ground of their joy. Now, before I tackle tackle this uh, theme of what's the essence, the the heart essence of, of worship inside I want to underline that truth, which I just articulated, one or two other ways. Because I think if we get that right, so much falls into place. Um, Turn with me to John 17, would you? I was going to give you glimpses of how you might do this for your your people. if If you believe it's important to get this truth across to them, here would be a way. There are lots of ways. This is one. Here we are at the high priestly prayer. I'm going to assume that you agree with me that the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus for his disciples and for us through them, as he says in verse 20, I'm praying for those who will believe on me through their word. So he's praying for us. I'm assuming that you agree with me that this prayer is an act of love. He's not hating us in this prayer. He's loving us in this prayer. So what does it sound like? Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes and said to his father, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Now, that's an odd way to begin a prayer for you, isn't it? Father, glorify me. Me. Make me glorious in this moment of my death. And through this and in the resurrection, oh God, don't abandon me. Make me glorious that I may then reciprocate and show how glorious you are. Strange way to begin a prayer for his people. Look at verses 4 and 5. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So God gave him a work to do that would glorify the Father. He has virtually done it. He's thinking of the cross as virtually done. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence, that the glory I had with you before the world, that the glory that I had with you, I'm sorry, let me read it again. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the first five verses of this prayer are a prayer for his own glory. So strange. So you set that up and you say now, okay, you're trying to make a case here that this is the heart and essence of his love for us. Praying for his own glory to be exalted. Why? And you go down to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's the closure. I'm praying that I would be glorious, that the cross would work, that I would make it through, that I would hold faith, that I would be worthy of being praised in songs like this forever and ever. And I would come out of the grave and rise and assemble the people around me. Why? So that they might see my glory forever. The glory that I've had as creator forever. The glory that I now have as redeemer forever. That's the reason I'm praying for my glory. Because if I don't have it, you don't have anything. You were made to know this, to love this, to be satisfied in this, to treasure this. The reason the world is in the mess it's in is because it's trying to find what they're made for every way but this way. And worship services and a life of worship has the potential of exposing people to what they were made for. You just can't, you know this. I keep saying you can't imagine. Of course you can imagine. You can imagine better than I can. You watch people. Why are they crying? They haven't been to church in 20 years. Why are they crying? They're crying. They can't even explain it. They're in touch with why they were made. And Christ knows that about us. And longing to give us the fullest, deepest, longest experience of joy, he prays that the Father would glorify him. 
Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 just to give another glimpse how to do it. Bob, in his letter to me, what, a year or so ago, said maybe I would want to consider this text, so I'm going to weave it in. (laughs) I should have built on it, but I've built... I built a whole book on it. If you want to read the book, God is the Gospel. Maybe the most important book I've ever written. So, there. <laughs> I believe in it. Now, look at this. Just look at this. I mean, these, these are three, two of the most important verses imaginable. I say that about a lot of verses. <laughs> <laughs> Verse 4. What does Satan not want you to experience? What does Satan see in the gospel he doesn't want you to have? Verse 4. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing, let's just say these words together now, say it with me, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The gospel... That's good news of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. doesn't want you to see that. And conversion is being given the capacity to see it. And worship is the ongoing expression of what we feel when we see it. Jump down two verses to verse 6. And then ask the other question, not just what Satan doesn't want you to see, but what does God engage with creative power to enable you to see? Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown with that same creative power, this is regeneration, this is ongoing illumination, that light Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you would put those two verses on top of each other, verse 4 and verse 6, they simply shed light on each other. Amazing light. Theological light, worship light, practical light. God enables your heart to perceive Light, spiritual light. I wish you would all read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light Immediately Imparted to the Soul, which is based on this verse. So the point of those two verses as I focus on them here is simply, Satan doesn't want you to see the essence of the gospel, which is the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God engages himself with infinite creative power to enable us in the new birth and ongoing illumination to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And this is what we want for our people and what only God can do. Only God can can do it. So that's enough underlining the last point of last night's message. God acting to uphold his glory is acting in love. We got it? I hope so. Now the question is, 
we are certainly then to join God in magnifying his glory. It's obvious. I think the text my dad probably quoted to me more than any text growing up. My dad was away from home three-fourths of the year doing evangelistic work, and he would write to me, and we would communicate on the phone, and he would say, Johnny, whatever you do, word or deed, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, over and over again. Whatever you do, eat, drink, the most basic things, son. Get up in the morning to the glory of God. Go to bed at night to the glory of God. Eat pizza to the glory of God. Drink Coke to the glory of God. Shoot buckets to the glory of God. Son, everything you do, do to the glory of God. So here's the question. What condition of the heart, what experience, that's the, that's the right word, What experience of the heart does that? What experience of the heart magnifies the greatness of the glory of God? That's the question for this message. What is it? What is the experience? Now, that's an important question, not because you're worship leaders and lead services of worship, but because the Bible in Romans 12 calls all of life worship. Present your bodies a living sacrifice to Christ, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This body, in all that it does, is to be worship, which means is to come from a heart condition that magnifies Jesus, that makes Jesus look good, makes him look as glorious as he really is. My body is to be moved, hugging, touching, giving, loving, rebuking. Whatever this body does as it moves through the world is being animated by a heart. The abundance of the heart, this part of the body speaks and all the other parts of the body move. It's, it's being animated by a heart. And my question in this message is, what is the experience of the heart that in itself shows God is infinitely valuable and beautiful and worthy and produces acts in the body which also display how valuable God is and how infinitely worthy he is. That's the question I'm asking. So as a sub-question, let me ask first why I'm asking that question, besides the fact that I was assigned the topic. Because I could approach it a whole lot of ways. Why do I ask the question with regard to the essence of worship, the heart of worship, what, what's the experience... The core, essential experience of the heart, unseen first by anybody but God. Why do I ask that question? And my first reason, I'll give you two. My first reason is Matthew 15, 8. Worship leaders should be really, really familiar with this verse. This people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the, con- the commandments of men. I am terrified as a pastor that God would write over our services vain, empty, 
The word vain means empty. Bethlehem Baptist Church worship services, vain, empty. There are such worship services. You should not want them. Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips. That means they're singing. They're preaching. They're praying for nothing. This people honors me with their lips. Why is it vain? Why is it for nothing? Because their heart is far from me. So that's why I'm asking this question. There isn't any more important question than to ask the heart question. What is my heart supposed to be doing while we're doing these music things, these verbal things, this preaching thing? What's my heart supposed to be doing? If it's not experiencing the right thing, this preaching is vain. The singing is vain. The music is vain, empty, useless, worse, smells in God's nose. So this is an important question. That's my first reason for asking it. Matthew 15, 8. I don't want that. I want it to be not vain. Here's my second reason for asking the heart question. You know this. The New Testament is stunningly silent about forms of worship. The Old Testament is not stunningly silent. It's very verbal. I mean, you got down to the threads and the colors of the threads and the tassels and and days and months and seasons and... Endless detail of how to do it in that regime. And it is gone. And Jesus is now the temple. And Jesus is now the priest. And Jesus is now the the blood and the sacrifice. And all the geography is irrelevant. And the buildings are irrelevant. I mean, it's stunningly silent. Stunning. Frighteningly silent. The word most commonly used for worship in the Old Testament, proskuneo in the Septuagint, the Greek, proskuneo, is prevalent in the Gospels, prevalent in Revelation, and virtually absent in the Epistles. Two little exceptions in Hebrews. And one in 1 Corinthians where a person falls down. Why is the main word for worship in the Old Testament gone out of the church? But they're in the Gospels and they're in Revelation. And here's the reason, I think. Jesus was there in the Gospels physically and people could fall down in front of him. And they did over and over again. So you got a lot of uses of that word. They ran up, they fell down, they worshipped him. Revelation, he's right there on the throne. People are really falling down. He's right there. They're falling down. And that word is gone. It's gone. It's not in the epistles. Why? Because he's he's not anywhere. He's everywhere. You can meet this Jesus in worship anywhere. You don't go anywhere. You don't have to move one millimeter of your body 
to meet this Jesus. In a, in a bed dying with cancer. Holy, holy, holy place. There is an incredibly strong de-externalization, internalization, intensification of worship onto the heart in the New Testament. That's the second reason why I'm asking this question. What is the experience of the heart that magnifies Jesus and produces acts of the body that show Jesus is magnificent, that turns all of life into worship and makes corporate worship services not vain? That's my question, and here's my answer. I'll give you the answer, and then I'm, I'll defend it from Scripture for a little bit, and then I'll spell out four implications for our worship life and services. The answer is, the experience is being satisfied with God. You know that I'm a, I'm a Trinitarian lover of Jesus. And when I say God, I mean Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. So don't, don't think I'm minimizing Christ here. If you want to say being satisfied with Christ or if you want to say being satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ, that's a good way to say it. A lot of ways to say this. Any way feels inadequate. But the key word, the operative emotional word is satisfied. I'll use some others as we go along, but I'm going to stick with that one as the main one. The experience that I've been saying is so massively important inside in order to turn all of life into worship and worship services not vain is the experience of satisfaction in all that God is for us in Christ. I'm so glad we are singing to the Lord a new song as well as old songs because the range of things about God that are worthy of being sung about and that bring satisfaction to the soul are infinite. We'll never run out of things to write about or sing about. Now let me give you some biblical support. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1. This is my favorite place to defend this point. Philippians chapter 1. Let me state the, uh, the thesis that I'm going to defend a little more clearly. Some of you know it because I've said it, written it a lot. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's the banner over my life. And, and in a little, little point of confession here, I, I think it would be pretty obvious if you knew me for just 10, 20 minutes. Um, I don't write about this as one who has arrived. <laughs> At satisfaction in God, I write as one desperately hungry, desperately thirsty. I have seen so many things in the Bible that make me want this. That's why I write. Every now and then, 
in a worship service or on the street talking to an unbeliever, I feel like I'm almost there. I almost see him. Almost feel the way I might feel in the last day when I see him and and my heart is finally content and we're not dealing with guilt feelings anymore and discouragements anymore. My life is one continuous battle against bad emotions. Lots of them. So, just know that Mr. Satisfaction, writer, (laughs) is on a quest. I have seen it. I have seen it. I, I have tasted it. I know where it's found. And everything I write, the book is called Desiring God, not having arrived at full experience of God. That's my life. I'm a desirer. My heart is a desire factory. And every day it's producing bad ones that have to be killed, put to death what is earthly in you. So a little moment of confession, unless you think I'm speaking from a position of total and complete, continual, constant satisfaction in God. Verse 19 of Philippians chapter 1. I am trying to show you the biblical foundation of the sentence, God is most satisfied in you, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this imprisonment will turn out for my deliverance. So it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be... Now the ESV has honored, we could put magnified, glorified, megaluno... Mega, you know that word, mega? Shown to be great. Magnified. I like magnified. Honored. So my, my, my expectation, my longing, is that Christ will be magnified, honored, glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. So just get that clear now. Half of my sentence, God is most glorified or Christ is most magnified, has now been stated. Paul's passion in all of his life for this body of his, whether it's in chains or preaching freely, is that his body would show Christ is magnificent. Christ is great. Christ is honorable. Christ is worthy. Christ satisfies the soul. Christ is more valuable than anything. That's, that's the goal. It's the goal of your services. It's the goal of our lives. So he said it now. And now the question is, how does he think that happens? How does that happen? That's his goal. He wants his body animated by a heart of some kind to do that. How? So let's read the next phrase. Verse 21. Um, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now the logic. We have a little school at Bethlehem. I teach guys 
going into ministry of various kinds. And the main thing I have to teach them is look for conjunctions. You know, it takes two or three years to help them do this. <laughs> Just look for conjunctions and understand them. Okay? So we got one here. Four. Four. So my eager expectation and hope is that Christ would be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For, I'm going to explain this. I'm going to ground this. I'm going to help you understand how in life and death, Christ is magnified in this body. I'm going to say something here that is earth-shaking and life-transforming. Watch, because I've just said for. Now you don't have to come to school any. Anymore at Bethlehem. <laughs> For to me to live, and that word live corresponds with the word life in verse 20. Make the connection. See that? For me to live corresponds with life is Christ. And to die, that word die corresponds to death in verse 20. So now you've seen he's, he's making the connection there so that he can unpack how in life and in death Christ is magnified. And the way he explains it is, let's just go with the death pair first, and then we'll do the life pair. I pray, hope, am expectant that in my body, in my death, Christ will be magnified for to me to die is gain. Christ will be shown to be magnificent in my dying if in my dying I experience it as gain. What does that mean? It means if I am so satisfied in Christ and all he is for me that all the satisfactions that will be taken away from me at death My wife will never be my wife again. In the kingdom, there will be no marriage or giving in marriage. I'm going away. I'm leaving behind everything that I have seemingly known so well and gotten so much pleasure from. I'm dying. I'm dying. And you look up to Christ and you say, Compare Christ, everything. Christ, everything. And you say, gain! At that moment, Christ is magnified because you are so satisfied in him. That's it. That's my textual argument. Christ is most magnified in you in your moment of dying when in your moment of dying you are most satisfied in him. He is most magnified in your dying when in your dying your heart is most satisfied in him. May God work that. Our people and ourselves get close to that from time to time. And all I know to pray is for the hour of my death that God will Mercifully give that to me. Give me that. I can't make that happen. This is why this teaching, by the way, of Christian hedonism 
And the elevation of the importance of the emotion of satisfaction in God is so threatening to so many people. It's out of their control. Most people like to have a religion they can manage. Tell me things I can do. Because if you tell me I have to experience something I can't make happen, that's scary. That means... I'm totally dependent on a supernatural work in my life. Yes, you are. Now the the other half. That was the death half. Here's the life half. Let's read it again. So he's he's so eager that Christ would be magnified, honored, glorified in my body, in my life, for to me to live... Is Christ. To live is Christ. What does that mean? I think the best exposition of the life half of this pair is Philippians 3, 7 and 8. So if you want to flip a page, or maybe you don't have to. In my Bible, you don't even have to. Just go to 3, 7 and 8, and we read this. Whatever gain I had, watch these words gain. They occur twice here. So to me to die is gain. But now he's not talking about dying as gain here. He's talking about, watch it. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's talking right now. He's in jail, so he's lost freedom. Lost a lot of possibilities of life. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So Christ is praised in death by being prized above life. That's the death part. And now we see that Christ is most glorified in life when we are most satisfied in him even before death. That's what verse 8 is about. I'm counting everything as rubbish. That I might gain Christ right now, right now. If something is taken away from me, if, if I must forego a night's sleep to love somebody. Rubbish. I gain Christ. Anything I lose, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Why does Philippians 2 say, don't grumble? Do all things without murmuring. The only possible way to live a life without murmuring is to count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Because at any given moment, I left my Bible on the plane yesterday. I'm borrowing a Bible. I'm so ticked at myself. And I'm discouraged. I've got six years of Markings in this Bible. I really want this Bible back. So you can pray about that when you get to Baltimore Airport in a couple hours. Um, I'm hoping they'll have it. But now, 
I'm not supposed to murmur. How, how can I not murmur? I want this Bible. And the answer is, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of Christ. <laughs> of the one about whom the Bible was written. He loves me. He's going to take care of me. He's going to be with me. He'd even provide me with another Bible, probably. <laughs> he'll, he'll turn all those absolutely white, blank, un-underlined pages into glory. He'll, he will do that if he chooses, but don't do it. Don't, don't do it. <laughs> Please. But you get the idea. I mean, that's a small thing, real small thing compared to what some of you have just lost. People, health, ministries. And, and the only key to life that displays the glory of God for others is that we be satisfied. We count everything as loss for the surpassing value, the supreme satisfaction of knowing Christ Jesus. This is the great warfare of our churches. This is the great goal of preaching. The great goal of worship is to be satisfied. So there's my textual support. And now I'm going to turn to the application. So I've just argued that God is Christ is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him using the death piece and the life piece of Philippians 1, 20 and 21 in order to show that the inner experience that in and of itself makes God magnificent is a being satisfied in him above everything else. And now... What, 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 what follows from that? Four, four things. <clears throat> Number one, if that's true, if, if God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, the first shocking thing for most people, and Bob mentioned it last night on, in the introduction, is that the pursuit of joy is not an option but mandated. I did not hear this growing up. I think I absorbed it because my father, my father was so joyful as a person that I absorbed it, but I never heard that I remember anybody preaching to the effect, you must be happy. You must pursue your joy. God threatens terrible things if you will not be happy. I just never heard anybody say that. We are duty-bound to pursue our joy. Now, millions and millions of Christians and a lot of them in your churches have absorbed a popular ethic. It's been around for centuries that to the degree that you seek your own benefit in an act, it is morally ruined. You should act with a sense of indifference to the benefits to yourself as you seek to love other people. And if you have a view to benefiting from an act, then that act has been morally corrupted. That is a very widespread and defended ethic. I could give you, 
I, I wrote my dissertation years and years ago on Jesus' command to love your enemy. And I read dozens and dozens of ethicists who argued that if you have a view to any reward at all in your ethical behavior, you are defective. So it's not just in the air, it's in the books. And it is deadly to corporate worship. Absolutely deadly. To the degree that this ethic dominates your people, that their pursuit of their joy is defective, your services will die. Forms will abide, hearts will not be what they ought to be. There are a lot of pastors who make it worse by saying things like, the problem with this people, problem with you people, in our dead services, is that you come here to get and not to give. You ever heard that sentence? You come here to get and not to give. You should come here to give. Give glory to God. Give praise to God. And if you came to give and not to get for yourselves, then this place would have some life in it. That's a stupid pastor. I mean, just the very tone of voice, of course, is stupid. You can't, you can't beat your people into being happy. Or, or Here's the problem, though. He really has a skewed theology. I say to my people, you don't have anything to bring to this service. You come in here dead. You come in here discouraged. You come in here bankrupt. You come in here empty. And maybe, if you're empty enough, God might get some glory from you by your craving His fullness. If you come here craving, longing, desiring, knowing this one thing, everything in the world has failed to satisfy my soul. I'm going to church this morning because I just might drink from the fountain of living water and have my soul satisfied. That's the kind of people I want to come. And that's the kind of service that will explode with life. It's thirsty people, it's hungry people, it's needy people who come to worship. So get out of, get out of their minds the thought that they are serving God or providing a duty to God to come to this service. They are desperate for God. They need God. And you're teaching them He so delights to satisfy their souls in Himself. Now I, I could, I could complain about people coming to get the wrong thing. There are a lot of people who come to get entertained. And they're not after God. They're after scintillating music. Logically precise preaching. I I know people who like my preaching who are not believers. That's horrible. Scary. What's wrong with me? Why can't I make them feel guilty? (laughs) Because that, that is the paradox. I mean, the power of deadness. You can abstract flourishes of language, logical order, 
passionate engagement and like it and not give a rip about what's being said. And, and, and the same is true with music. Preaching is music. I mean, my understanding of preaching is just music without the music. Same as this, right? Same as this. I've had, man, I, as a deer pants for the flowing streams, so my soul longs for thee. That's the way people, I want people to come to worship. A deer. This deer is not offering anything to this stream. He's just, just and and the stream, if if it were God, which it is, the stream would be saying, "This thirst honors me very much. That you're drinking here and not there. That's, thank you. I am delighted that you're here. I feel very honored by you." that you've come to this stream to drink from me. So my first application is the, implica- the implication of saying God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him is that pursuing satisfaction in him is an obligation and is not a threat to your ethics in him. Number two, second application Pursuing satisfaction in God and keeping satisfaction in God as the core inner experience in worship um, makes worship become radically God-centered. Now, you might feel, no, it doesn't. It makes it you-centered. I've had people say this to me. Piper, you say, Seek my joy. Seek my happiness. Seek my satisfaction. That's just me. That's not God-centered. That's me-centered. What's wrong here? And a lot of you know my favorite story to illustrate why this is not the case. I love to tell the story, so I'm going to tell it again. Because David told me that this story brings more light on worship issues than any story I ever tell. So if you heard it a hundred times, enjoy. Okay. Let me tell you a little something about this story. I'm going to tell you the story of the roses, what I'm talking about. I did this with daisies on our 40th meeting anniversary. Nolan and I have been married 40 years as of last December. We, were, we met on 6666. <laughs> I, I, on, on last June, on the 6th of June, I was in Palm Springs. And I got on the phone to the florist about three blocks from our house. I said, I want you to send six roses to 1801 11th Avenue South. Okay, fine. Get them there this afternoon? Yep. Okay. What do you want on the card? I want 6666. <laughs> Put, and, and, and the guy uh, they got there and said, that's the devil's number. <laughs> that's I said, just put the dashes in the right place. <laughs> and I only mention that, that on, on the 40th anniversary, that is 2006, 
June 6th, we actually did this story and had it videoed by my daughter. So maybe it'll make its way to YouTube someday, but I don't, I don't like to play that game too much. But, but anyway, here, here's the story. On the 40th anniversary, I ring the doorbell. I've got 40 roses this time behind my back, right? And, and I'm going to uh, surprise my wife because I don't ever ring the doorbell at my own house. I ring the doorbell, <laughs> and, and she opens the door, surprised, and I pull out the roses and say, Happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I say, It's my duty. <laughs> this is duty. Everybody always laughs at that point. They laugh at duty. And I said, why do you laugh at duty? Duty's a good thing. That's the wrong thing to say. <laughs> duty is a good thing, but duty given roses on an anniversary is not a good thing. So we replay the, replay the video. Ding dong. Ah, oh, Johnny, what's wrong? Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I say, um, I couldn't help myself. I just love buying things for you. In fact, I've arranged for a sitter. I used to say that. Tell the 13 now. I don't need a sitter. Arrange um, for a sitter because there's nothing I'd rather do, Noel, than spend the evening with you tonight. And not in a million years would she ever say or has she ever said, Nothing you'd rather do. You are so selfish. Oh, you're going to look like you. You are so self-centered. You are Christian hedonist. You ruin worship. You ruin marriage. You ruin anniversary. Now, the point of that story is that's worship. If you, if you want to bring roses to God on Sunday morning. And he says, why did you bring those? Don't tell him the Bible says to. <laughs> I'm a good, disciplined Christian. I do the right things. Don't, don't give him that answer. Say, there's nothing I'd rather do than spend an hour with you. And I'm just putting the roses up there because they're beautiful and you're beautiful and I want to know you better and experience you more. And I, he wouldn't say, I, I, I. All he ever says is, I want, I want, I want. No. It, when, 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 you, when, little, when six little puppies are thirsty, and they're tangling their man against each other, the best way to get them centered not on themselves is to put a big bowl of water, and then they become like little petals on a leaf. And, and they're all drinking, drink, 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 drink. Well, what's the center of that picture? The puppies? No, the water. If, if everybody comes to worship longing to be satisfied in him, he's the center. That's, it's not self-centered to want to be happy in another. You got that? It's not self-centered to want to center your joy in another, namely Christ. In fact, we all know this, only we don't experience very often, that the, the, the sweetest moments in life are the moments when we are so into another that we are forgetting ourselves. That's true in sex, and that's true in worship. It's true in loving people on the street. If we could just gloriously forget how we look, 
how we sound, how we smell, our hair, our body. Oh, that we could forget ourselves and be into another in love and in delight. That would be joy. And you wouldn't be thinking about feeling joy. You'd just be feeling joy. So it's not self-centered. That's application number number two. Number three. Um, it protects, that is, emphasizing the inner experience of worship as being satisfied in God, protects worship as an end in itself rather than a means to an end. And here's what I have in mind. There are... Thousands of people and pastors and churches that use worship on Sunday morning, use it. We use it to attract crowds. We use it to raise money. We use it to recruit workers. We use it to improve church morale. We use it to give talented musicians an opportunity to fulfill their calling. We use it to teach our children a way of righteousness. We use it to help marriages stay together. We use it to evangelize the the lost and so on. We use it, use it, use it. And that is not what happens if you are making God the center through being satisfied in him. It's not what happens. Here's what happens. You can't say to your wife, I feel a strong delight in you so that you will make me a nice meal. Can you? Does it work like that? I feel right now a deep satisfaction in you so that you will make me supper. I think she would say, I think you want supper, <laughs> not me. And she'd be right. You can't say to your son, I love playing ball with you so that you will cut the grass. We're onto something very profound here. If you really delight in something, some person, it's an end in itself. And as soon as you try to think of that delight as a means to something, it's not real anymore. Therefore, do you see how purging it is to cultivate a people who are pursuing satisfaction in God? Period. In point. I'm not saying the worship services are the end point. I'm saying that emotional experience is not a means to anything. When we all get to heaven and we're sinning no more and we're seeing him for what he really is and there is rising in our hearts a full-orbed satisfaction. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When that's finally fully happening, nobody will ever say, now what's that for? What are we supposed to do with that? What's that for? 
what, what, what will it lead to? What will it produce? Where, what's the real point beyond that? There is no real point beyond that. That's the end. Christ will be magnified in that. That experience of satisfaction in Him. And all of its growing as we love people. Now that leads me to my fourth one, but let me leave this one too quick. I don't think this is widely understood. Just analyze it for yourself, in your own soul. Can there be an authentic delighting in something, in something if you're trying to use that experience to make something else happen. We want our worship to be experiences which in that moment are ends in themselves. We're not, we're not massaging these people for money. We're not massaging them to get this building paid for, to uh, recruit children's workers for goodness sakes. Let's have a rousing, a rousing service this morning so that at the end when I mention the children's needs, everybody will be primed to respond. Oh, that's evil. Now, lest anybody misunderstand, when that happens, when a worship service week in and week out happens, as an, as an end in itself, everything gets better. Marriages get better. Children's workers get motivated. People witness to their faith. But if you start to think the other way around, that, okay, we've got to get evangelism happening in this church, so for evangelism to happen, we're going to have some rousing and vital worship services. Then you ruin, you ruin worship. It's, it's like the analogy of the marriage would be, if, if you... If you look into your wife's eyes and say, you, you are my delight. I guarantee you, the food will improve. (laughs) But you know, and she knows, that if there's a little footnote, I love you, I delight in you. And I hope the food improves. <laughs> She'll feel it. You'll know it. This is not easy. Because we all, we all like our food the way we like it. <laughs> and to, to bracket that and love God or wife for herself and for himself is not an easy thing. Last quick brief application. The, the fourth implication of saying that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him is that it, it explains, it gives rise to why all of life is worship as well as gatherings of the people of God being corporate worship.
Why are both of those called worship? Why, how does Romans 12, 1 and 2 work? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices or living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So present your body to God. So that means something that's happening with the body is magnifying the worth of God. And I'm arguing being satisfied with God is the key to that. And I'll give you one text. If you want to go with me to Matthew 5, and we'll close with this. It'll be the last thing we do. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps you've seen this connection before, maybe not. I desperately want to be the man of verse 16. And you do too, this person. We read verse 16 and we'll back up, put it in context. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I think verse 16 of Matthew 5 is what Romans 12, 1 means. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship. This behavior, letting your light shine that men may see your good works, which you do with your body, results in people giving glory to God. So there's an example of the, of the outward life coming from a certain heart, the outward life making people admire God. Now, this is a miracle because many of us, when we do good deeds, get admired. We don't want that. That's not what the verse says. The verse says, when you do your good deeds, God gets admired. And then my question is, how did that, how do you do your good deeds so that God gets admired and you don't become the focus? It's a huge question for the church today. And, and I think the answer is found in the context flowing from verses 11 to 16. And I'll just point this out and we'll be, we'll be done. Verse 11. Um, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice in that day and be glad. <laughs> he can't really mean that, can he? I mean, that was too fast. We just, he just can't, we must have misread. He can't mean that. Blessed are you when, when others revile you. Have you ever been reviled? I mean, this is ugly. This is unbelievably painful. Somebody says, you've made the stupidest mistake I've ever... You can't possibly have done what you just did. That hurts. I'm not going to be happy. Am I? Or am I? He says to. Rejoice and be glad for... Great is your reward in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets... So you're trying to live for Christ. You do what you think is the right thing. You get reviled for it, persecuted for it, utter all kinds of evil against you for it. 
and you're discouraged and you're depressed and it hurts like crazy. And Jesus says to you, rejoice. Be satisfied in your reward. I'm your reward. You're going to meet me someday in heaven. I'm going to get you there. Be satisfied and rejoice in this horrible, horrible experience that you're, you're having of controversy and criticism. You are the salt of the earth. So if you were to ask me, what's the salt? What's tangy? Or you are the light of the world. Verse 14. So we got salt and we've got light flowing from rejoice in the day that you are persecuted because you can be satisfied, not with that, but with your reward in heaven. I would say, if you show me somebody like that, somebody who in the midst of suffering, in the midst of criticism, in the midst of conflict, has a demeanor of inner, deep, quiet, strong satisfaction in God and the rewards that are coming I would say that's the saltiest, brightest thing I've ever seen in my life. That tastes so different than the world. I can't. There is only one explanation for that. God. I think that's what it means. And so when you get to verse 16, it says, let your light so shine before men. I think it means deeds done out of that kind of heart get glory for God and not for you. The kind of heart is, I am rejoicing in my reward, not in being liked by other people. I am rejoicing in my reward, not in health. I'm I'm rejoicing in my God and my reward, Christ. Not a good job, not ministry going well, not kids walking in the path of righteousness. I am rejoicing in God. And out of that satisfaction in him, I am doing things for others rather than being all wrapped up in myself that makes others say, God is great. So whether it's a worship service flowing from satisfaction in God or a worship life of good deeds flowing in from satisfaction in God, I think it holds because God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Worship is not vain and love is real. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray earnestly that the miracle that I've been talking about and so imperfectly experienced myself would be worked in all of us here. I beg of you, go deeper with me than you've ever gone with my wife, Noel, and Talitha, and my children who've grown and married and have their kids, go deep with them. Go deep with these uh, couple thousand folks here and grant, oh God, that for the sake of the people we lead, we ourselves would taste and see that the Lord is good and having tasted, be satisfied profoundly in you. And this in Jesus' name, amen. 
You've been listening to a message by John Piper, which was given at our Worship God 2009 conference. It has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.